and turn with me again to Ezra chapter 7. Ezra chapter 7. Our title of our message this morning is The Blessing of God. Maybe you've heard someone give you a greeting. Have a blessed day. Heard that? Someone might have used that. I don't know if that's a, a common greeting around here, but some places it is. I heard a recent news story. Uh, phrase was uh, had been banned for in the United States Air Force. Uh, you could not say, have a blessed day. But this week they said, well, we've canceled that. You can say that now. Because he said his commentator that said it says doesn't it's not a religious thing it's just being kind oh maybe we've uh, used the uh, phrase may the lord bless you uh, that's probably a more common uh, i've used that as well at the end of notes or or letters or something like that may the lord bless you and so what does it mean when people say they are blessed I mean, I think we can use the word in several different ways, but sometimes people say, you know, uh, I'm so blessed. What does that mean? You know, often we uh, think of being blessed. We might, uh, we might think of a, a good health. might think of a comfortable home. We might think of food or clothing. Uh, we might think of enough money to pay the bills or uh, have a savings account. Not long ago, I heard someone say about his family, he said, we are really blessed. The problem with that is that uh, that person uses foul language and curses God, although his family is faithful to attend Mass, he still says, we are really blessed. And humanly speaking, he was blessed in a sense. Uh, he had two homes. He had boats, cars, trucks, rec- recreational vehicles, and on and on we could go with all the things that he had. And yet there was no evidence of a personal relationship with the Lord through salvation in his life. So what does it mean to know the blessing of God? Do you really want... And seek God's blessing on your personal life, your family, your service for the Lord, and on this church? I think we all know the right answer to that question. Few would say, oh no, I don't want God's blessing. I'd rather try to make my blessings apart from God. But I don't want us to give a knee-jerk answer, yes, just because you know that's the obvious answer correct answer. I want us to think about the implications of the question before we answer it. Do we really want and do we really seek God's blessing upon our lives? There's a number of men in the scripture whom God blessed. Abraham, Jacob, Joseph, David. Those are all good examples, prominent examples and some of the blessings that came in form of temporal things. Uh, those men had houses and lands and livestock, and yet it was more than that. And Ezra is also a man whom God blessed, even though he is not well known as these other men are. But we finally come to meet him here in chapter 7 in the book that bears his name. And you remember, as we began our study, we noted that 
There was about a 57, 58 year gap between the events of chapter 6 and chapter 7. And the temple had been rebuilt under the ministries of Zerubbabel and Joshua, aided by the preaching of the prophets Haggai and Zechariah. And the exiles that had returned to Israel during the first wave were either dead or very old by now. And they had settled in the land, as we will see. And in many cases, they had begun to blend together with the pagans of the land. Now, the walls of Jerusalem had not yet been rebuilt. That left the city uh, vulnerable to attack. And God raised up Ezra and Nehemiah to bring spiritual reform to his people. Both of these men were born in Babylon. They had close connections with King Artaxerxes. No doubt they both enjoyed comfortable living conditions there, but both men were burdened with the low spiritual estate of the exiles that had returned to the land. Both men were willing to give up their comfortable situations in Babylon and endure the hardships and hassles to bring reform to God's people. But how could they accomplish this overwhelming task? I believe the answer comes to us in verse, uh, in chapter 7 here. Three times in our chapter, as we read in our scripture reading this morning, and then actually it's going to find, you'll find it five times in the rest of Ezra and Nehemiah, but God's hand was upon these men. God's hand is another way of saying God's blessing. God blessed these men and their labors for him. And if we want his blessing, his hand to rest upon us, we would be well, do well to study their lives. Now, granted, blessings do come in the form of silver and gold, as we see in the rest of this chapter, silver and gold and, and materials and so forth. But do we want the blessing of God And we want to use those things, those temporal things, for the honor and the glory of the Lord and the work of the Lord. Now, we could add more factors, but limiting ourselves here to Ezra 7, we learn to have God's hand of blessing on us, we must study and obey His Word with a view of teaching others and glorifying God for everything. That is the theme that is given to us here in verse 10. Verse 10 explains why the good hand of his God was upon him. It says, For Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach in Israel statutes and judgments. The connection between Ezra and God's word is repeated no less than eight times in this chapter. And there's a definite correlation between our commitment to know and obey God's word and his hand of blessing upon us. If we want God's hand of blessing, now sometimes people think, well, you know, if you want God's hand to be upon you, uh, that can sometimes not be so pleasant. God does have a hand of discipline. 
But that's not what we're talking about here. This is talking about God's blessing upon our life, and it's a much more positive thing. But if we want God's blessing, we have to have a commitment to know and obey God's word. So notice, first of all, the seeking of God's blessing. Now, as you know, I'm not talking about the false doctrine of the second blessing taught in some circles today. We spoke of this in our recent study in Romans. It's the idea that we don't receive everything God has for us when we get saved, and so we need to seek after a second blessing, sometimes referred to as the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Listen, when you trust Christ as your Savior, you receive the indwelling Spirit of God at that moment, and the great need is for you to allow the Holy Spirit to fill you, to guide you, to control you. And that is a day-by-day moment-by-moment submission to the working of the Holy Spirit in your life. And yet I believe we see here that there should be a continued desire to know and have God's hand upon our lives. Notice, God's blessing is for time and eternity. God's blessing is for time and for eternity. If If you have God's blessing upon your life, you may die a painful martyr's death in your 20s, or you may live happily into your 90s. You may live a physically impaired body, or you may live in a robust and healthy body. But either way, you will be irrepressibly joyous and successful in the true sense of the word if God's hand of blessing rests upon you. Now the world's blessings promise happiness, but deliver ultimately emptiness and pain. Most people, and sadly even some professing Christians, live for the world's blessings. I hope you're not one of these people who feels compelled to make a daily visit to the convenience store to buy a lottery ticket in hopes that one day, someday, perhaps today, you're going to hit it big and really be blessed. It's amazing how many people sit in the casinos and play the machines and hoping to strike it rich. This isn't a freak occurrence. This happens all over our country every day and night of the week every year. Little old grannies and young people and foreigners were all feeding the machines in hopes of hitting the jackpot. What do you think they gain if they win? What if you win Powerball? Well, what's Mark 8, 36 say? For what shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? God's blessing is the only blessing that counts for both time and eternity. If you gain and die with the world's blessings, but you lack God's blessings, woe to you. You are poor indeed. If you live and die with God's blessing, even though you lack what the world calls blessings, you are truly blessed. John Newton wrote a verse in one of his songs, uh, Glorious Things of Thee Are Spoken, which we have in our hymn books, but he does, they didn't include this verse. But the verse he included 
In his original writing of the song was, Fading is the world's best pleasure, all its boasted pomp and show, solid joys and lasting treasure, none but Zion's children know. You can gain everything in this world has, and you can die a poor, poor person. But you can have God's blessing, and you can have the riches that only God can give. Secondly, notice that God's blessing flows through family lines. We see this here in chapter 7, verses 1 through 5, is one of those short little genealogies here that uh, is often given in some of these Old Testament books, and it traces Ezra's family lineage back through 16 forefathers to Aaron, the chief priest and brother of Moses. Now, there are a number of gaps in the list, uh, says there that Ezra, the son of Surahiah, was a high priest at the time of Nebuchadnezzar, who executed him about 130 years before. And so Ezra was a great or great great grandson of Surahiah. Uh, and the point of the genealogy is to show us that Ezra was qualified as a priest to teach God's law. Also, it prepares us to meet a man of considerable importance. Now, you may be thinking, well, if God's blessing flows through family lines, you know, that's not fair. What if I came from a godless family? What hope is there for me to experience God's blessing? Well, the answer of course, is never ask God to be fair with you. Don't use, well, that's not fair, God. You see, that's a bad prayer. You don't want God's fairness. You want His mercy. But secondly, there is great hope for you because you can be the start of a long heritage of God's blessing on your children and grandchildren. You can't do anything about your ancestors, but you should certainly do some things about your descendants. You can have a positive effect on your children and your grandchildren. Psalm 128 verse 1 says, Blessed is everyone that feareth the Lord, that walketh in his ways. It goes on to show how the wife, the children, the grandchildren of a man who fears the Lord will be blessed no matter how rotten your upbringing, if you will follow the Lord, you will be blessed and you will also be the source of great blessing to your children and grandchildren and perhaps many generations to follow. Now this genealogy here should serve us as a warning who have been blessed with godly parents. Aaron had some sons who were consecrated as priests, but they did not obey the Lord, and he struck them dead with fire from heaven, it tells us in Leviticus chapter 10. Aaron also had a grandson by the name of Phineas. Find him here in, in verse 5, who took bold action for God so that a plaque was or plague, excuse me, not a plaque, but a plague, plague was stopped among the Israelites. 
Israel had fallen into a sinister plot of Balaam. You remember Balaam, who counseled the Midianite king to seduce Israel into idolatry and, and through intermarriage. And an Israelite man brazenly brought a Midianite woman into his tent in the sight of Israel. And Phinehas was the guy who took the spear, went into the tent and pierced them both through while they were probably in the middle of an act of immorality. And as a result of his bold action, the Lord told Moses that he was giving to Phinehas his covenant of peace and then added in Numbers chapter 25 and verse 13, and he shall have it and his seed after him, even the covenant of an everlasting priesthood, because he was zealous for his God and made an atonement for the children of Israel. And his bold obedience resulted in blessing on his descendants for hundreds of years after right down to a fellow by the name of Ezra. And the lesson is, for us who have godly parents, we can either disobey the Lord and deprive His blessing on our descendants, or we can be bold in obeying the Lord, and we can bring His blessing to our descendants. I think the point stands in Scripture that God's blessing flows, though, through family lines. We never obey or sin in isolation, and that's a sobering thought that should motivate us to follow the Lord. Thirdly, God's blessing is beyond human effort. If you remember, just before the Lord fed the 5,000, it was Jesus who asked Philip, whence shall we buy bread that these may eat? And this he said to prove him, or test him, for he himself knew what he would do. And of course, Philip, he was a good at math. He was a quick calculator. He would do it in his head. He didn't need one of those little things you punch. Didn't need his computer. He made a quick calculation and he answered, 200 penny worth of bread is not sufficient for every one of them to make take a little. Philip and his disciples didn't have 200 penny worth, which was about 200 days wages. And even if they could scrape together that much, it would not have been sufficient for everyone to have received just even a little bit. But Jesus could go far beyond what human calculations and effort could ever hope to do. And the result was that people all ate as much as they wanted and they even gathered up 12 basketful of leftovers, a full basket for each disciple. Now God's hand of blessing on Ezra is seen in that a pagan king granted him his request here in verse 6. It says, Ezra went up to Babylon. He was ready, a, scri a ready scribe in the law of Moses, which the Lord of Israel had given. And the king granted him all his requests. The king's grant is stated in the letter that he gave Ezra, as we, uh, you can read here from verse 7 on through verse 26. And if we're going to summarize this uh, particular letter, first of all, he authorized Ezra to go to Jerusalem, and ensure that God's law was both taught and observed in verses 14 and then in verse 25. He authorized Ezra to go and ensure that God's law be taught. 
He also provided a generous grant to buy supplies and a temple vessels for the uh, temple worship. That's in verses 15 through 20. And there it includes a, a, a very a, a good list of, of things that was authorized to be bought to be bought. And then he thirdly commanded the treasures in the provinces to supplement anything else that Ezra needed, up to three and three quarters tons of silver, 600 bushels of wheat, 600 gallons of wine, 600 gallons of olive oil, and salt without limit, verse 21 and 22. And then he exempted all the temple officials and workers from taxation. Verse 24 And then he authorized Ezra to set up a judicial system to see that these laws were obeyed and the violators would be punished, verses 25 and 26. Here was a pagan king that God used to bless Ezra and his people. Now this is far more than Ezra dreamed that a pagan king would grant him to do. Now, from the king's perspective, it was wise. It was a cost-effective policy. He had already had trouble with Egypt revolting. He figured that if he granted political and religious self-governance to these Jews, they would live contently under his reign, and his superstitions motivated him. He didn't want to incur the wrath of God of heaven. Verse 23, whosoever is commanded by God of heaven, let it be diligently done for the house of God of heaven. For why should there be wrath against the realm of the king and his sons? By providing generously for the people who followed this God to worship him as prescribed, Artaxerxes hoped that God would be nice to him. Isn't that the way the world thinks? You know, if I do something good for God, maybe he'll do something good for me. But God used the king's superstitions and the political strategies to bless his people through his servant Ezra. Now, verse 27 makes it clear that there it was none other than God who put it in the king's heart to beautify the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. But Israel still had to go and ask for it. Sometimes the Bible compresses a lot into the phrase, the king granted him all his request. There's a lot more there than what those few words can say. To go before a powerful monarch and his counselors and his powerful princes and ask for such extravagant provisions for a subject people whom the king easily could have exterminated, that took some courage. The source of Ezra's strength, though, is stated for us in verse 28. He says, And I was strengthened as the hand of the Lord my God was upon me. And so we must work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, and yet at the same time it is God who worketh in you both to will and to do his good pleasure, as it tells us in Philippians. God's blessing involves and requires our working, and yet it goes far beyond anything we can do. You know, I certainly desire for my life, for my children, for my grandchildren, and for my ministry that God would work far beyond my effort or my ability or my expectation. And I hope that each one of you will do the same. All of us should seek his blessing in our lives. But how does this blessing come? 
Notice, secondly, the study and obedience to God's word. God's blessings come to those who study and obey the word of the Lord. Now, I realize that Ezra was especially gifted for the role of teaching God's word, and not all people are gifted as Ezra was. But whether you're gifted to teach in a formal way or not, you are nonetheless required to learn God's word so you can know how he wants you to live. Every Christian should want to live in a manner that's pleasing to the Lord. And to do so, you must grow in your understanding of his word. Concerning Ezra's emphasis on God's law, we understand it was he more than any other man who stamped Israel with a lasting character as a people of the book. We also observe about verse 6 that it does not share the doubts of modern critics about the antiquity of Moses or the authority of the Lord concerning the law, nor does it see Ezra as a reviser or a compiler. Uh, He's concerned with something that is given. You know, modern critics will sit down in judgment on God's word, and the proper order is to allow the word to be in judgment on us. I think that David was most likely the author of Psalm 119, but there is a belief that perhaps Ezra wrote the great Psalm 119. And what does the, the Psalm 119 do? It extols God's word for 176 acrostic verses. Whether it was David or Ezra or even Daniel, Psalm 119 is a great psalm about the word of God. And here in Ezra chapter 7 and verse 6, it tells us that he was a ready scribe in the law of Moses. Now the word ready there means quick or skillful, implying that he was quick to understand. Sometimes we're not always very quick, are we? (laughs) We're kind of uh, dull. We don't quite get it. Ezra was quick to understand, and he was skillful. He put it together. He put together the various parts of God's Word. And while giftedness has something to do with it, skill also requires effort and practice. If you want to be skillful at anything, you have to put some effort into it. You have to put some practice into it. And it's the same way with the Word of God. If you're going to be skillful in the Word of God, you need to spend time in the Word of God. You need to put some effort into it and some practice. And for Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord, it says, verse 10 was a deliberate action, a deliberate decision on his part to spend time in God's Word. And even if you are so gifted, studying God's Word will not happen automatically and spontaneously. You have to discipline yourself to do it. And the minute you let up, other things will crowd it out. You know, we all live busy lives, I know that. We all have the same number of hours in a day, though. And we all must make decisions on how we spend those hours. Am I going to spend time in the Word of God? Or are other things going to crowd it out? When you spend time in the Word, make sure that your bottom line is obedience. It says again here in verse 10, For Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord, and then what? To do it. 
It's nonsense to say that you want God's blessing while you knowingly live in disobedience to His Word. The goal of Bible study is not to fill our heads with facts. Now, facts are important. Don't misunderstand. But that's not the goal. The goal of Bible study is not to fill our head with facts. It's to change our hearts and our lives into conformity to Jesus Christ. Note, by the way, that Artaxerxes here trusted Ezra's character and his integrity to the extent he gave him enormous material resources. Look again at verse 18. It says, And whatsoever shall seem good to thee, and to thy brethren to do with the rest of the silver and the gold. That do after the will of your God. He told him to use it for the temple. If there was anything left, he told him, do it according to the will of his God. Ezra's obedience was obvious to this pagan king. And our obedience should be obvious to those in the world who know us. Do the people we work with and No, who are not saved, perhaps, do they know that we obey God and His Word? It should be obvious to them. That brings us to the foundation of teaching others. Again, not everyone's gifted to teach in a public setting like this. And whatever you've gleaned from God's Word and incorporated into your daily life, it ought to be passed on to others whom God puts in your circle of influence. And if you teach others what you know in your head, but you do not practice in your life, you become like the scribes and the Pharisees of Jesus' day, hypocrites. That does not mean that you must be perfect before you can teach the Word of God, but it does call for the integrity of admitting your shortcomings and the honest effort to apply yourself to it. I think one of the occupational hazards of preaching God's Word each week is that I can easily fall in the trap of studying the Word so that I can tell everyone else how they should live, but then I don't apply it to myself. I often think of what someone said, it would be better for a preacher to break his neck going into the pulpit than for him not to be the first to follow God. Or Charles Spurgeon put it this way, if any man's life at home is unworthy, he should go several miles before he stands up to preach, and then when he stands up, he should say nothing. And so we all should seek God's blessing above all else. His blessing comes to the ones who study and obey the Word of God. Such study and obedience are the foundation for imparting the word to others, whether it be personally or publicly. And then, fourthly, we notice here glorifying God for his abundant mercy. Now, after Ezra cites this incredible letter from King Artaxerxes, he breaks forth in praise in verses 27 and 28. He says, Blessed be the Lord God of our fathers, which hath put such a thing as this in the king's heart, to beautify the house of the Lord which is in Jerusalem, and hath extended mercy unto me before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty princes. And I was strengthened as the hand of the Lord my God was upon me, and I gathered together out of Israel chief men to go up with me. Ezra didn't take credit 
for devoting himself for the study of God's word and for his bold presentation to the king. He gave all the credit to God for his abundant mercy. Any good that appears in anyone's heart, whether in a believer's heart or in the heart of a pagan king, comes from God, who deserves all the glory. When God blesses us, our response should be to bless God for the great mercy in using such an imperfect vessel as we are. Now, it's remarkable that God is pleased to be known in the Bible as the God of Jacob. You read that in Psalm 46, verse 7 and verse 10. God is the God of Jacob. You remember Jacob? A man with many shortcomings, many faults, and we can identify with Jacob. You know, Jacob was a a conniver. He connived his brother out of his birthright. He bargained with God at Bethel and he promised to follow him if he would uh, take care of him and bring him back safely to the land. And after many years of trying to outmaneuver Laban, he returned to the land full of fear about uh, what Esau might do to him. And the night before he was to meet Esau, the Lord met him and wrestled with him and dislocated his hip so that Jacob always walked with a limp from that encounter. But before dawn, the angel of God said to Jacob, Let me go, for the day breaketh. And he said, I will not let thee go, except thou bless me. And the Lord did bless Jacob, the conniver, changed his name to Israel, one who wrestled with God and prevailed. And the greatness of Jacob was not related to his strength and his abilities. It was due to God's hand of blessing resting upon Jacob. I hope you will join Jacob and me this morning in praying, God, I won't let you go until you bless me. His blessings come to those who study and obey his word and with the view of imparting what they have learned to others for the glory of God. And may the hand of the Lord our God be upon us for his name's sake. Let's pray. Father in heaven,